Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday, and um, I've been hesitating all day who to do this week. I wasn't crazy about the different names, but I saw one that I'm sort of conflicted about, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, it's coming up this week, somebody you probably most of you never heard of. Uh, you said of uh, a very uh, f- famous, but not so famous today, uh, Lithuanian rabbi of the 1800s. He was a guy's a cover. Um, he's a very interesting, but very hard to understand uh, person. This is a rabbi in Lithuania, as they say, in the 1800s. And uh, what he's, it was a big, big rub in a small town. The Eastern Europe, Lithuania especially, had the phenomenon of very small communities with big scholars. So, you know, kind of funny in that way. Um, but what's special or unusual, I guess Isaac Hubbard was in addition to being a big scholar uh, in the typical fashion, you know, of Gemara and uh, Rishonim and Halacha and that sort of thing, um, on which he doesn't stand out at all. There are many people that were like that in those years. He's the big Makubal, the Litvak Tushinant to Kabbalah. Uh, and he, but there is exceptions. He's the leader of the exceptions. And here you have a very strange story. I'm not sure how to proceed with this. I'm just going to, you know, sort of ramble by, by, uh, intuition, I guess. <clears throat> what we have to do over here is as follows. You heard of the Vilna Gon. Uh, the Vilna Gon lived, hmm, from 1720, something. I mean, he lived to be almost 80 years old, 70 some years old, 75. 76 years old, something along those lines. And the only one is a phenomenon, you know. He's a, he's a unique, I think everybody knows that. So what exactly did he do? The answer is he lived most of his life in Vilna, and he learned of a storm, of course, as we know. You know, he didn't even learn sleep two hours a day. It was like a half hour, half hour here, half hour there, and then uh, six hours later, another half hour. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a wild and crazy story. And he went through Kolotar Kula. So the Vilna Gaon is regarded as the sort of the Hasidic Rebbe of the Misnagdim, of the Litvaks. Now, did he have a yeshiva? No. Um, was he a rabbi of a community? No. So what was it? He did his thing, and certain people were attracted to him. And, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of people were attracted to him, and he wouldn't let him in his inner circle. And some people got into the inner circle. If you want to know anything about the Vilna Gaon, because there's a lot of legends out there, and mices and stuff like that, but just for those who are listening or interested in this subject, what you want to do, is, I'm talking about classic stuff now, not modern scholarship. Uh, if you want, because the modern scholarship in the Vilna Gaon is like half and half. Some is good, a lot of it is lousy. The academic scholarship is funny. Some of it is good, but a great deal of it is, is, is a baloney, which is surprising. You think a professor would do the job, but somewhere or other, comes really go not really. But read the Hakdoma to the Shulchan Aruch. In the beginning of Archaim, written by his kids, because uh, the only one didn't publish anything. It's like one of these uh, Rizal types where he didn't write anything, but uh, during his lifetime, certainly, and afterwards, 
his disciples or whoever it is, and that's what I'm going to talk about in a second, undertake to, you know, put his stuff on paper. So his children and a couple of students, leftover students, published a few years after his death, the famous Bira Gron the Shulchan Aruch. So if you read the Hakdama to that, which is a fairly lengthy document, at the beginning of the Shulchan Aruch, there you'll read, you know, sure it's hagiographical, but nevertheless you'll read, you know, who the Vilna Gon was, written by his kids and people who knew him, very uh, short short time after after he died. Uh, it's actually very interesting in that regard. And if you read there, you'll see they mention uh, towards the end who the Talmudim of the Grar, you know, who, who this is the inner circle, and who they consider to be people who actually, you know, not just rub shoulders with him or something like that, but, you know, really learn from him. It's a small number. The first one is Rechaim Belashner, as wouldn't be surprised. The other one, mostly probably never heard of. Rav Shlom of Tolchen, I don't know, you know, and three uh, Hirsch of Simiatets. I don't think most people are familiar with this. Now, uh, uh, some of me learn Nicholas, some of me learn Nister, because I've only gone among other things in Makobo. But I myself am a little uh, unclear about this, because usually in Kabbalah you're supposed to learn from somebody else. And from what I understand, what they write, they say the only gone just started learning, if, if I have this correct, started learning Kabbalah on his own when he was nine, nine years old. Of course, his nine years old is like year 90, but still, still, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he's a genius and all that, but still, you know, he, he seems like he learned on his own. I must be wrong, but that's the impression you get. Um, and so, the villain goes big into that, and Nicholas also been the Nister. Some of these students, it seems to me, um, best I can make out, were, in, you know, did Nigla with them. They learned, uh, you know, what should I say, Mesheftis together, they say, and they brought them all their kashas and this sort of business. Some of them actually did some, like, uh, maskil type work of Chilufi Girsas and things of that nature. And some were into Kabbalistic business with them. You know what I'm saying? Some of them acted as disciples of the Vilnagon in the Kabbalistic stuff. So, he would, so here you have a little a little bit of a repeat of, like, Darizal business, where Darizal's walking around and talking in, in Super Kabbalah, and Chaim Vitalik is following him around and trying to keep memory and writing it down later on. So you have the Vilna Gaon talking in Kabbalah. Just imagine what that is. And uh, then you have others who are later on going to write it down after his death. So um, some of these students were there for a long time with the Vilna Gaon. Some were with a short time. In our story, there uh, was a couple of people from Shklov, which is a community to the east of Vilna, deeper into Russia. And apparently, then the Shklov was a very interesting community because you had big maskilim there, you had big doctors, you also had big makabalim uh, and all, all kind of types. And uh, so there's two brothers that they went from Shklov and they went and hooked up with the Vilna Gon in the last two years of his life. Isn't that strange? Uh, so he, as best I can tell, you have two young guys, think about what I'm saying, who were born around 1770, and one of the brothers is born in 1770, and the other one around then. So that means they're in their 20s, and they go to Vilna when they're like 25, or something along those lines, 24. Think about a right, very young yeshiva guy who's very, very good in learning. Of course, you want to see the Vilna going. And the Vilna was them, which wasn't so simple. And they got in tight with him, and he talked a lot in Kabbalah with them, and then he died in two years. Which is exactly what happened with Chaim Vital, right? I mean, you know, he uh, met Darizal the last two years of his life, and they talked and talked and talked, and then Darizal died. So, this two-year dose of the Grah in uh, Kabbalah uh, ends with this person named the Menachem Mendel of Shklov. Uh, that's a name that doesn't mean anything to you, although 
Historians are very familiar with him because he later on became one of the very first, I can't use the word Zionist, but the first people that made Ali, the Yishav HaYashan, the from Yishav, from before the Zionists. You know, the Talmud Agra. Why does Israel, do, why does everybody follow the Agra? Because of these guys. The students of the Agra made Ali around 1808, 1810, in those years. I mean, literally, the students of the Vilna Gon. But what does it mean, students of Vilna Gon? It's funny. You'd think somebody learned within 10, 20 years. They learned two years. You know, maybe even a little less. Approximately two years. So this Menachem Mendel of Shklov is with the Vilna Gon when he's in his 20s, and the Vilna Gon's in his 70s, and then the Vilna Gon dies. Uh, and then this guy stays in Vilna for another 10 years, and then makes Aliyah, which was very unusual. So during those 10 years, from 1798 to 1808, you know, something like that, yeah, I think those are the years. Um, so he is obsessed, as the whole circle is, with getting the stuff, the, the, the stuff that they've only gone out to print. And they do. And so if you know anything about the publication history of the stuff that they've only gone, you'll know that it all comes out like in the first decade of the 1800s. You know, the the beer are grown, the Shulchan Aruch, and the, you know, the Kabbalah stuff, you know, what is Sifrit Sinusa, and the, you know, his commentaries on Chavis on Pirkeavis, and, you know, all that kind of business. Uh, all come out, and mainly due to this Menachem Mendel Shklov and, and the children of Vildegon, which is kind of interesting. So here you have a guy who, you know, I like to be chronological. So here's somebody when he's around the age of 30, uh, is working Yom Belayla in Vilna with the family of Vildegon, who just died, to be Masadar Old Kisavim. I have no idea what the, you know, manuscript situation looked like. I mean, did the Vildegon himself prepare things, or did he tell the people and they wrote it out? For example, this Menachem Mendel Shklov, I believe he's the one who wrote the Birar Gola Mishle. Vilgon told him the stuff and he wrote it down. Vilgon himself didn't write anything. You know, it's 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 that kind of funny business. And uh, anyway, so they get X number of uh, uh, you know uh, books published as you as we would say today. And uh, then he's gone. Then he moves to Israel, to Palestine, and uh, where he has a very interesting career. But I don't want to get off on that path. During the years that he was. In Vilna, after the death of Vilna Gon, this Menachem Mendel of Shklov, by the way, he's a Misnaga, this is Menachem Mendel of the Lubavitch. This is the antithesis of that. These are the Vilna Gon students, they're the anti Hasidim, right? So Menachem Mendel is a name that goes to both. So this Menachem Mendel of Shklov, so he hooks up with a disciple of his own, a young guy, who gets a guy to cover, our hero today, who was born in 1789, which means that if he's born in 1789, so he was, what, eight years old when the Vilna Gon died? So he never met him. Uh, and then he's, and he's from a town in Lithuania. I forget where exactly, you know. It's uh, one of those uh, communities that they had over there. And um, he learns at home, you know. And uh, he's a genius. Uh, as I said before, nothing unusual about that. They had a lot of these big going him at that time. He's from Grudna, that's right. So all these areas are not far from each other. Vilna and Grodna and all the rest of it. It's all Belarus, you know, Lithuania. And uh, so, let's put it this way. 1789 until 1803. So he's living in Grodna and learning up a storm, as kids did. No, he's one of these guys that's a big Balkishran, so one of the problem learning for him. And then at the age of 14, he moves to Vilna. And Vildegon's dead, but he meets up and learns under... For five, he, he teams up with this Menachem Mendel of Shklov. Isn't that interesting? And he learns with him for five years, meaning from the age of 14 to the age of 19. And during those five years, 
uh, he learns some Kabbalah stuff with Vilnagon. But this is weird, because a teenager is not supposed to be into this. But this proves what I've always said, which is there's a certain legend. You say you're not supposed to learn Kabbalah until you're 40, you know, there was such an idea, or 30, and only went to Bucky B'Shasa Poskim, and this, that, and the other. But in history, that's not actually true. Uh, as best as I can tell, and that's all you ever get with me, as best as I can tell, certain people have an atiyah to this stuff, and others do not. I do not. Certain people have an atiyah to this stuff, which means it's just a natural drive to do it again in Kabbalah. And I'm talking about the Kabbalah, the Rizal, and the whole nine yards. And uh, some of these guys, like like you saw, the Vilnagon started at nine years old, and here you have somebody who's starting when he's 14 years old. And uh, how can a 14-year-old boy, I mean, think about if a boy was in high school today, in the Mechina of Neir Israel, or certainly some other place. You're going to let him learn Kabbalah? First, he's like, look, buddy, you know, first do the Nikola stuff. And that, and even if you tell me that this was a genius, and by 14 he knew it, and somebody else knew it at 20, which I accept, you know, they had such people. But still, 14 is 14, and, uh, you know, it's crazy. So, nevertheless, you see, some people just have a natural magnetism to the Kabbalah. The way somebody like me, for example, is into history. You know, it's just a natural thing. And so, uh, here you have somebody, it's a guy to cover, and he teams up with this person, he learns him for five years, and then the Rebbe's gone, and never returns. He moves to Palestine, that's the end of that. Uh, so, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's like a, you know, a, a most unusual course of study. And that's the, Rebbe, the last Rebbe he ever has. So, here you have... Uh, what shall I say? It's a guy's a cover. Must have come from a well-to-do family because he wouldn't get rabbinical positions if he wasn't. So he had a highly elitist education in the super firm sense. And already, by 1819, he's like on his own. He's, of course, married. And he spends the rest of his life... He didn't live that long. He lived to be 63, 64, something like that. So the next 40 years or so... Uh, what am I talking about? the next 35 years or so. Um, no, I'm sorry, that's right, 40, yeah, but next 40 years or so. Uh, he's a rabbi in, in, in small towns in Lithuania. Uh, you've heard of Tikton, maybe you heard of Suvalka, Suvalka Rav. These are not large communities, but what's interesting about him is very often the Jews are the largest part of the population, more than 50% of the population of these small places were Jewish in the 19th century. Uh, I was in Tikton not long ago. And it's a giant synagogue from the 1600s when Tikton was a uh, very rich community. And the shul looks like a little Vatican. It's, it's beyond fancy, but it's in an advanced state of, of disrepair. And the guys I were with uh, on a crazy trip I did to Eastern Europe, they like climbed in surreptitiously into the building to see. It looks like a renaissance, like the Vatican inside, you know, fancy de la schmancy. But they took their life in their hands because the building is like condemned. You know, it's a, let's put it this way. If you know some zillionaire who, I mean this, I'm not being funny. If you know some big millionaire who wants to put some money and fix up a shoal that was a shoal, uh, you know, the palace, the Tikton is the place. I'm not the only one who knows this is well known. So he was a rabbi in Tikton and Suvalk and some other towns. And that's how he spent the rest of his life. So that's what you did if you were Tamil Chacham back in the 1800s. Nobody, very, very few people started a yeshiva. As you know, very, very few people did that. At the most, at the most, I say, you might have a chabur of a few guys, what they call kibbutz. That's what you used to call kibbutz. Not a collective farm, but they would have a few guys come and learn by a local rav. And, uh, you know, that's a very efficient way of doing it also. To be perfectly honest, that's what the Milnagon had. Uh, so he may have had that, and I'm not even sure if he did that. 
So he spent the rest of his life as a rabbi in a small communities, but this was considered a chashva position once upon a time. And you're the rub of the city. And as a result, uh, you have all the rabbinical duties. And, you know, uh, not giving speeches, except Shabbos Agol, Shabbos Shuba. Uh, I have to tell you, one of the reasons I was drawn to talk about this person today is, um, you know, twofold, or, you know, uh, coincidences, which is sort of like a little uh, uh, signal to me. Uh, one is, as you'll see in a minute, he, among his uh, books that he published, among his farm, is one which has to do with history and his attack on the opponents of Kabbalah. So that's one I happen to be doing right now Thursday nights with my two Chabrusas in our Zaini, uh, what do you call it, eccentric Chabura, doing the Mogim Etzina from Yitzchak Uh That's one reason. So when I saw that name, it really rung a bell because it's one of the things I learned during the week. Um, now that we finished the other Sefer, whatever it was, Irgas. Um, and the other reason is I was in a bookstore the other day uh, in Baltimore, uh, and uh, it wasn't Chopsy, it was the other one, whatever they call it. It was about a week or two ago, and I saw something that really caught my eye and made no sense to me, and that's this, somebody published one of the many little swarm of these guys of cover. It was a couple of drushes that he gave as a rov. You know, Shabbos Agolo, Shabbos Shuba, you know, the Parshas Para, Parshas Zohar, kind of thing that somebody like me be interested in, most people aren't interested in. And it was when the kudos... How the heck does somebody like this, or, you know, of all this farm in the world, why would you take some a relatively obscure work like this and want to make it into kudos? I mean, I love it, but, you know, it didn't make any sense. Like, on what bit? Who did this in Israel? It's called Siach Yitzchak. And I didn't have any money in me at the time, and I said, I'll come back later and get it. You know what happens. So by the time I came back, it's gone. So uh, I'm looking now where they can get a copy. They don't have it in Baltimore. They must have it in New York or Lakewood. This Siach Yitzchak It's not a large safer at all. And, uh, you know, it's got these uh, half a dozen drushes or something like that he gave. And since that whole incident happened, and I saw it this week is this yard, so I said, well, it must be a sign from upstairs to talk about him a little bit. Um, so here you have somebody who spent all these years as a rov, but that's not what makes him unusual. Because as a rabbi, uh, so he's a big genius. There are plenty of those. And, you know, he publishes Svarim. They're around today, but I don't think anybody looks at them. They're, actually, they're very good, but, you know, uh, I remember he has a safer on on uh, Suffolk and Kavua. You know, when when do you hold by Kavua? Metsa, Metsa, dummy. He has on Breira. Uh, I remember he has a thing on Eich and Bisurin. You know, all different cases. When do you have Eich and Bisurin? If you have this situation, that situation. And years ago, I bought once from the most rough cook. Uh, he had a responsive volume, you know, Charles uh, and Tubas, on Evan Ezra, a lot of uh, Aguna questions. Uh, and it's, and if you read it, uh, I remember going through a lot of it. When you read it, it's exactly like any other rabbis of totally nigla, and it's just alumnus and aloha. And by the way, aguna questions are no joke. He lived in a time when you had the Cantonists, so you know the Tsar of Russia was taking children and throwing them away, so it was ripping up Jewish families. So you could you could have bad aguna situations. Um, he certainly did, and uh, fine. So he's in like 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 you might say a junior year you know that 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 kind of thing. Uh, by the way, I don't know where that safer is. Like so many books of mine, I'm, I know I lent it to somebody long ago, and I'll probably never see it again. And who, anybody who was interested in getting the Binyan, she, she was Binyan Olam, and Evan Ezra must have been a Talmud Chacham. So I must have some friend somewhere who uh, must have forgotten to give it back, because it's not the average person who's interested in a book like that. 
uh, most rough cook, uh, you know, put it out. Anyway, but that, as I say, doesn't make him unusual. In addition to all that, living in a small town, he was Rosh Hashanah into the study of Kabbalah. And he emerges in the rabbinic world. The public doesn't know anything about this, because this is not for the masses. And not at all. Uh, and among those who know, among the big Talmud Chacham, he's the guy that knows the Kabbalah of Vilna Gon and that sort of thing. Because the Vilna Gon apparently has his own system. Um, I don't know enough about it. I know, as I said before, the Vilna Gon doesn't seem to... This is what I know. I'm, I could be wrong in this. I believe I'm right. I can run it by somebody. I think what I'm saying is right. As far as I can tell, the Vilna Gon uh, was interested in, on his own, and if he had a guide or a Rebbe, it's the Ramchal, Moshe Lutzato, which is very, very interesting. And uh, he kind of follows, uh, you know, the path of the Ramchal and understanding the Arizal stuff. So the Arizal dies in the late 1500s. By the time now we're talking about the 1700s, and what everybody's trying to do in Europe is organize properly the thoughts of the Arizal, which were amorphous and not put in any kind of system except by Ramchal and others, um, so they're trying to organize in some kind of a better system. And, which by the way, the, the, the Chabad does in their way, everybody was into that. And the Vilnagon seems to follow the Ramchal, and, but on the other hand, not entirely. And, uh, this Menachem Endel was also following that path because he was a Talmud Vilnagon. But my understanding is he doesn't exactly go 100% like the Vilnagon either, and neither does the Rebbe cover. They only go 95, 98% like the Vilnagon. That's, that's what I understand. But these are matters that are above your pay grade and my pay grade. You know, these are questions on Simpson and uh, the Olamus and, uh, the, the, you know, the Partsufin. I mean, they, these are all technical matters. Uh, the technical language, which was just a world that, that most people don't even know exists. And those who know it exists, that's all they know. It's, it's existing. In Baltimore, where I live, how many people are into this and actually know it? I can think of one, maybe two. And, uh, you know, if I'm wrong, it's three and four <laughs> in, in a large community of Talmud HaChachamim. Because it's not the type of thing we do in Eretz Yisrael, you have a lot. Okay? And maybe some other places. But uh, here's a world... So he's, he's a giant in that. Okay, besides the covers, like a, a, a big name. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of academic scholarship. This I happen to know. A lot of professors have been into these guys that cover hmm, last 25, 30 years. Uh, mainly in Israel, because as far as I can tell, he's a tremendous Ashbon Rav Cook, and everybody's into Rav Cook in Israel. So Rav Cook, of course, was a Litvak. He's very much into Kabbalah, in the style of the Vilna Gon, and the Ramchal and the Isaac Hover. See, see the trinity I just made? There's the, the Vilna Gon, and the, the Ramchal, and the Isaac Hover. So everybody's heard of the Ramchal, uh, Lutzato, and everybody's heard of Vilna Gon, obviously. Not so many people have heard of Isaac Isaac Hover. Uh, and he was the name in the first half of the 19th century. He died in 1850, 1855. And as far as I know, the only historical piece that's reliable, there are a lot of legends about him. There are always, you know, these legends. The only thing I know is that uh, in the last four years of his life, they took him to Suvalk, and he actually organized a Talmud Torah, which means a free, a, a, a free school for, for, for the boys of the community. I mean, that's a practical kind of thing. Now, my personal connection... Which the guys that cover in the Nister sense is just historical, and that is uh, since the least of his works, and I didn't get that book with the Dakudas with the Drushes yet. The least of his works, and what am I talking about? I've mentioned this in the past, but I'll be able to concentrate a little bit on it now. Uh, back in the 
you know, the Kabbalah rose as a big movement among the elites in Judaism in the 1500s. Not so much before that. And uh, they make a lot of statements out there. How do you know it's true? You say, well, you have to be a Kabbalah. That's it. So it's okay with me, but there were some rabbis and scholars, always have been, who are skeptical. They say, I know the whole thing's not baloney. It's not a fake. And things of that nature. Now, they're Batal Be'elef. But there were some of them, and the most well-known, I would say, the one who had the biggest splash, was this rabbi in Venice in the 1600s, uh, Leona de Modena, Rabbi Yudhar de Modena, um, who was a character in a half. He was a big Talmud no question about it. He's Av Bezden Bezden, Av Bezden of, uh, of, uh, of Venice, so that's a big deal. And he had famous Talmudim, uh, big rabbis and all that. And at the same time, he wrote an autobiography in which he describes himself as a gambler, and you know, he taught dancing lessons. He's a, he's a character. But he was a big time of I know it sounds funny, but he's a big time of Chacham. That's why many historians have written about him, because they find him fascinating, because it seems to be a, a paradox. Now, and he's a brilliant writer. I mean, I have a number of his farm. And he wrote a lot of little, these little farm. He had a very bad life. He, he talks all about it in his autobiography. Now, um, one of the things he wrote was an attack on Kabbalah. He said, it's all uh, fake. But he never published it. Uh, because either he probably was afraid, or he wasn't sure. Ari Nohem. It's online, by the way. The, the, you, can, you can Google it if, you, if you're interested in that. And he makes like a historical and other series of criticisms on, on, on the uh, on old Kabbalah. And basically, he said, how do you know it's real? He thinks it's funny. So notice he's a from guy in the sense that he's all for Nigla, but he's not from the sense he's opposed. He's not opposed to Nister. He's opposed to what the Kabbalah claim is the Nister. That's what it boils down to. So it's a very interesting, intelligent book. It was beyond controversial, and he never published it. But uh, let's put it this way: like with all racy, controversial business, uh, uh, it wasn't published, but copies were made surreptitiously. C died, I think, in sixteen forty-eight, something like that. And so uh, clearly, people had access to his unwritten manuscripts, and they circulated. And you know how it goes, something that's trafe uh, really gets read. And so, among the cognoscenti in Italy and spread to the rest of Europe, uh, you know, people were writing, no Kabbalah is baloney. And I'll repeat again, the guy was not a kaifer, he was not a shaptite sminik, the opposite, he was a from guy, he was a rov, he was a paisic, by the way, he had shaus and chubas, you know, he's that type, he was a little unusual, but nevertheless, He's a member from within the Machna, so to speak. So I give it a big punch. Now, um, people in the know knew about this book because it was circulating, like as we would say today, surreptitiously in the yeshiva world. Then that means people made physical copies out of it by, by handwriting copies. Think about that. So if it's circulating around, it must have been considered hot stuff. On the other hand, from the official point of view, it's up, of course, it's this trafe. So there you had it. And uh, all during the 1600s and 1700s and 1800s, it was, it was uh, you know, known, as I say, uh, surreptitiously or otherwise, but it wasn't published. Uh, now, in the 1700s, courtesy uh, of the 1700s, it was sufficiently well known that two big Italian Mokobolim wrote books without saying it officially, but it was against... To, to, to quote unquote for him for his kashas. One is the, the uh, Irigas, Yosef Irigas, the uh, Shomer Munim, who I've spoken about in these podcasts, actually. 
Uh, that was a Seder we did, as I say, in the eccentric uh, shir we have. And uh, the other one's the Ramchal. Same idea. Do you get a choker? So basically, he's a straw man. You have somebody, Leona Modena, putting the... Uh, the uh, it's written in the form of, of, of a debate. So the anti-Kabbalah guy says this and this and this, and then the Kabbalah guy knocks the ball out of the park, you know. So obviously, the person writing it, whether the Ramchal or the Irgas, are the Kabbalah. So it's, it's not exactly a fair fight. But nevertheless, they're brilliantly written. This is well known. They're brilliantly written. And uh, they made a splash, uh, especially the Ergos, you know. So, it's funny. These are two very famous uh, Svarim, for those who know about it. And they circulated a lot. But they were polemics against a book that nobody's supposed to have read. Now, that's in the 1700s. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, in the early 1800s, two big, important rabbis in Lithuania of all places, write similar type of books. Uh, why? Uh, what does that have to do with the Lithuanian Shiva world? Well, you see, the Vilna Gon's influence was such that, uh, you know, the Gra is the Gra, and he's very into Kabbalah, and he's a big fan of the, um, what do you call it, of the uh, Ramchal. And so these kinds of issues that you find in Chokram are now uh, of interest to... Uh, you might say yeshiva guys in Lithuania of a certain sort. Like I say, not many, but some. Uh, I would remind you that uh, Rechaim Belazhi himself was a big makobol and has a lot of kabbal, as you know, uh, in the Nefesh Chaim, which was published in 1820. And around 1820, I don't remember exactly the year, a Moscow, a left-winger, left-wing Moscow in Italy, actually published the book against the kabbal. I already know him. Uh, and that made a big splash. It became like, you know, a classic of the Haskalah. Because the Haskalah believed all the Kabbalah is a big lie. And the Zohar is a fake. And the Rizal was, uh, you know, deluded and all that sort of thing. And therefore, don't waste your time with all Kabbalah. Uh, in, in other words, it's not real. And uh, you can just imagine what this meant to the Frum. When I say the Frum, most Frum don't even know what I was talking about. But those who knew, uh, anybody who's into Kabbalah got super angry. And... The Hasidim, Kedarkom, they just killed it with silence. They figured nobody's going to read the book, which is true. And, uh, you know, professor here, professor there, it's not going to much of a Ignore it. There were two rabbis in Lithuania, uh, unusual types. They both knew a lot about Kabbalah and, and about Nikola as well. One was our hero, Rebizia cover, And uh, the other one is the Radal, by the way. You know, on the side of the Pricker Blazer. Radal was a very, very, very unusual person. Maybe I talked about him another time. Uh, it was a gigantic Talmud Chacham and never wanted to be a Rav. So he just spent all his life uh, learning uh, 24-7 and writing these uh, unusual swarm. And both of them wrote books like in the 1820s, 30s, whatever. Uh, Kineged, this new book that was published, but it had been around for 100 years, 150 years. And uh, the, that's what I'm uh, doing now in the Chabur we have on Thursday nights. And the one from Yitzhak cover is called Mugen Bitsino. Mugen Bitsino, Shield and a Buckler. And he tries to um, what shall I say, refute all the arguments um, of the anti-Kabbalah book. And since I'm in the middle of it now, I can tell you the way he does it is that whatever the other guy says, like in chapter 1, so he says, in chapter 1, he claims so-and-so, and now I'm going to try to upschlug it. In chapter 2, he says this and this and this, and I'm going to upschlug that also. And uh, 
I can't say that it's, you know, it's overwhelmingly uh, brilliant stuff. I mean, it's, it's, I'm just reporting to Rosha makes on me. But he always gets to the heart of the matter, which is lower Inuenaraya. You know, you, 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 you don't know. See, he knew, it's a funny thing. He knew that the person he's criticizing is not a Moscow. He knew the person he's criticizing is not a Reformed Jew. He knew the person he's criticizing believed in Torah Shevixav and Torah Shalapad and Torah Messinai. I'm talking about Yehuda Aradim Modena. He knew that the person who's criticizing Kabbalah is coming from a from perspective. So he couldn't, you know, do to him what he would do if the guy was a reform rabbi or something like that. But he's pretty vicious. And he basically says that uh, you're stupid because you're dealing with something that you don't understand. And those who understand it will know how chash it is. That seems to be, and I'm up to like chapter 8, chapter 9, something like that. Uh, and it's got a lot of chapters in it. So here you have a very unusual situation of somebody who's a literature of who, uh, you know, is spending his time usually, I mean, as far as publication records concerned, on Gemara, Roshonim, you know, Halacha, and that sort of thing. And yet you also see that he has a whole list of publications um, on, uh, on Vilna Gon and, and Ramchal and regular Kabbalah stuff as well. I don't understand. He died in 1853. This is something I don't get. The first of his books that seemed to be published in Kabbalah were published in Johannesburg, South Africa in 1864. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> in Hebrew letters. Tafresh Koftal Amehaki. I don't know how that happened. You know, did, did some Makobal from Lithuania go to South Africa that early? I, you know, I don't, I don't understand. But I can tell you that uh, this highly elitist phenomenon was only shocked to a few people, but the few people were the B'nai Aliyah. So you think of the background of uh, was coming later after him as the Rav Elyashav, you know, with the lesson of Shavach although he didn't learn under him, uh, and uh, Rav Cook, and uh, I don't know, you know, a whole group of people. Now it's pretty heavily concentrated in Israel. This ends up, as, as best as I can tell, um, interacting with you and me in the writings of people like Rav Dessler and the people who follow Rav Dessler, you know, kind of Friedlander and that sort of, sort of business. Uh, and either you know what I'm talking about or you don't, but uh, they take a lot of these ideas from the writings of Yitzhak Isaac Hubbard and from the Gro and from the Rizal and from other places too, and that's what's presented as quote-unquote the Torah Shkafa you see in a lot of places today, although nowhere near the technical detail that you find in the writings of Yitzhak Isaac Hubbard. I mean, I've seen a little of it, you know, and it's uh, above my pay grade. Uh, my goodness. He, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, the world of Kabbalah it's not for uh, people who are not willing. It's like a science, you know. What I'm, I'm I'm not being rhetorical over here, and I'm not talking in generalities. If you want to understand the stuff, A is connected to B, B is connected to C. You have to understand, you know, the entire structure. And structure is referred to in different ways by different authors. So it's a a, a whole uh, world by itself. What's interesting to me is that the from world. Well, let me rephrase that. The yeshivish world is not into Kabbalah, but always relies on Kabbalah. It's like unspoken. What do I mean? Uh, you don't find discussions in Yeshiva world on technical matters of Arizal stuff. On the other hand, people are very interested these days in um, in the Ramchal, the Tzatos writings, a lot of them. Uh, you know, the the, the, the Derech Hashem, of course, and Derech Tastunas, and the Klach Pesach although I saw an article by an Israeli professor the other day, some big guy, 
who said that the clock basically wasn't written by the Rambam but by his students. You know, you get into that level of detail, and uh, you know the and Yisakai's cover. I know he always tries to, co- to connect things that happen in the Chumash with Kabbalistic ideas. Uh, I don't understand them all the time, and uh, the yeshiva world basically goes like this. You know, we follow the mitzvahs, we read the Torah. If I see something that doesn't make any sense to me, and I can, and if I give some kind of explanation, it's not really a satisfying explanation, I always fall back and say, look, I don't know, it's some Kabbalah business, you know. Why did Avon do this and this? It doesn't make any sense. Must be, uh, you know, some uh, nister reason. You know what I'm saying? Why did Moshe Rabbeinu do that and that and that? Why does the Torah tell you, you know, like they say, about uh, the kings of uh, Edom, or what is it, the Rambam quotes, you know, or, um, you know, the, uh, what is it? The Timna Hoysa Pelegesh, you know, what, what, what's it over there? What, you know, like, why do you have to know that? The famous question of uh, Menashe, the king of Yehuda. Why do you have to know those little details? So what do we say nowadays? We say, I don't know, it must be Kabbalah. You, know? you see, he knows we always fall back on the hinterland of these ideas as a kind of line of defense uh, because the Kabbalah is gigantic and it's, a, and it's limitless and we don't know about it, but we know it's supposed to cover everything. So we're relying on people like these guys are covering the few like that to do the work in, in, in that time, uh, even though the rest of us are sort of like, what's the right word, just taking a shelter in it, or uh, the Kabbalah forms the ultimate intellectual defense against all uh, anti-Torah claims, or words like that, the ultimate, the final line of defense. Because it's unanswerable, you know, it's Kabbalah, so you can't, you know, you can't critique it, you see? So it's like very interesting in that, in that regard. And uh, I saw something really cool uh, some of his writings, these guys of cover, are still being printed. You know, uh, when he died, he said these are di- these guys are in a different league. He said, "I don't want my Kabbalah stuff published uh, because I don't want the public to read. I only want Yechidi school to read those who are, are Barachi, so it should circulate like in manuscript form or something like that." Uh, and which why some of it was destroyed in the Holocaust, but uh, some not. And I read this Israeli guy who's uh, like a Kippasruga, you know, type professor. And, you know, from guy, and he said, he wrote that, uh, and this guy, by the way, wrote a dissertation on uh, parts of the Ritzik Isaac cover. I'll, I'll tell you again, in Israel, they're getting more and more into him. There's a guy, Baumgarten, all the, they, they get, they're getting uh, into, into reading his uh, writings in detail. I mean, microscopic detail, and with surprising results, but I don't want to go into that here. Um, and he says that there was some new safer that was published in B'nai Brock by some group that's uh, perpetuating his uh, legacy. Uh, in other words, it was something, I think it was a sivir, it's a new sivir, I could be wrong, some Kabbalistic thing. And this guy, who's a Mizrahi guy, you knows Hashem Shabbos, he called him up, and he said, I want to buy a copy. I heard you just published this and this and that. And they said, who are you? He said, my name is so-and-so. He said, are you married? No, I'm not married, because the guy wasn't married at the time. Well, if you're not married, we're not selling it to you. Meaning, they don't publish these things and put them in a bookstore. They publish these things, and it only goes out to the Echide school from the from the circle. So that's a whole different concept of publishing, isn't it? Usually in Negla, you publish a safer, and you hope a lot of people buy it. Cover your cause, make a profit, get your name out there, whatever it is. These things, which is the real Kabbalah, the real McCoy, you don't have that, uh, what shall I say, you don't have the ethos. Uh, now, some Kabbalah guys do that, and you wonder if they're the real thing. But... What I just described is the real thing because they're Dafka looking not to sell it to everybody. Get what the guy said? They, they, in order to get it, you have to call them up. In order to get, they, and they got to vet you. You know what I mean? They got to say, who are you? 
And if 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 you're not what they consider in the range of bar hockey, and if in Kabbalah, you got to be married, you know. So if you're in the, in 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 uh, if you're not in that, then we don't want to sell the book to you. Um, so I just shared this with you today. It's a little bit of an unusual profile. Uh, to, I don't know if it whets the appetite because I, I doubt very much anybody listening to this is going to be moved to start uh, undertaking the gigantic task of understanding the Kabbalah, the Vilna Gon, <laughs> let alone of his students, you know, Menach Mendel Shklover, he's the guy's a cover of people like that. But uh, I'll tell you again, Ruff Cook was into this big time, and uh, I don't understand enough about him and his attitude towards this, because I'm not a Ruff Cook person particularly, although the world is full of such people. Uh, but according to this, he, you know, he was, he was like super into, uh, into all this business, and uh, today, Kabbalah is uh, alive and well here in Israel, and there's more and more people interested in it. The only thing is, we have no quality control. How do you know if you go to a store, a farm store, and you see a safer on Kabbalah? How do you know if the guy knows what he's talking about? There's no way for you and I to tell. Therefore, we kind of back off. You know what I'm We back off, which probably is what they want, because uh, covered only master double. You know, the, the, whole, the old idea was that those who talk about it don't know what they're talking about. Those who know about it don't talk about it. So... Um, he ends up, you know, dying at the age of 60-something as a rov in Lithuania. If I didn't know anything at all about the Kabbalah, you say, he was a great Tom Chacham, no question about that, and he was a, you know, big scholar and all that, and, you know, you could read his Charles and Chubas. But then there's the Clark Kent, then there's the Superman side. Actually, Superman is the front, Clark Kent is in the back. So Clark Kent is the one learning the uh, learning Kabbalah. I just found that to be a very interesting uh, kind of uh, phenomenon, especially, as I said before, since I missed a chance to get that safer. And I wanted to share this uh, rather unusual person. You should know that he exists out there. With that, I say have a good weekend. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.